Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, it's Elise Lunen again. I'm the co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. My guest today is Jill Blakeway. Before we get to our conversation, I want to say thanks to our partners at Chase Sapphire. When I'm not in the Goop office, I might be flying back and forth to New York City, San Francisco, Boston, Seattle to interview the guests you hear on the show every week. I love getting to sit down with these incredible people and much prefer having a face-to-face conversation. And traveling has its pros and cons. With the Chase Sapphire Reserve Card, there are some pretty sweet perks though. You can earn three times the points on travel and dining worldwide, and an even better bonus is that those points are worth 50% more when you redeem them for travel through Chase. So maybe you'll go for that hotel upgrade, or spring for some more legroom, or extend your next road trip through the weekend. Visit chase.com slash sapphire to learn more. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Jill Blakeway is an acupuncturist, the founder of the Unova Center, and the author of Energy Medicine, which is a fascinating read about the science that supports the mystery of healing. It's an essential read, particularly if you're a skeptic. I talked to Jill about energy, chi, how our bodies are always trying to get back into balance, and one of my favorite topics, fascia. We get into the integration of research and medicine and some insane studies that measure unconventional forms of healing that will truly blow your mind. We also talk about a machine that can be influenced by the human mind, suggesting that our consciousness has the power to affect reality. So I really love Jill. 
So we're affecting what happens next. And so we can be fearful and contract and we will create this contractive, painful future for ourselves. Or we can be loving and compassionate and expansive and we will create a, a bigger and brighter future for ourselves. But it all starts with what, how we feel. Let's get right to her. I'm always fascinated by people who are skeptical of acupuncture too, in so much as it's, you know, obviously a, a massive tenet of healthcare in the East. So the rejection of it always seems a little racist. But also for anyone who's experienced it, it's such, it's so powerful. And so I, I've never really understood people who assume that it's sort of sham medicine or that, that it, it can't possibly do anything. Well, I always tell my patients, we wouldn't still be doing it if it didn't work. It's right. been going for thousands of years. There's many things that we did thousands of year, years ago that we just do not do now. And the physiological effects of acupuncture are actually really measurable. So we can put people in MRIs and look at their brains and we can see changes when mm -hmm. they do acupuncture. We can use Doppler ultrasound to show that it improves circulation. We can use thermal imaging to show that it reduces inflammation. And in in this book, though, what I did was I tried to go a little deeper mm -hmm. than that and ask, how does acupuncture really work electromagnetically? Because it is a form of energy medicine. Right. And so the place I started was the acupuncture points themselves, because they are different to other parts of the body. When they're MRI'd, they have clusters of nerves and um, blood vessels around them. And there was some really interesting research at the University of Vermont by a a woman called Dr. Helen Langevin in the medical school there, who looked at acupuncture points and found that they have a 20% greater pull force, mm. which means that when you put a needle in and you twist it, it takes 20% more energy to pull that needle out there than elsewhere in the body, which is small but significant. And then she did research on rat abdominal wall, and she found that the connective tissue winds around the needle like spaghetti on a fork, and that when it does it's much more electroconductive. Mm. So the acupuncture points are more electroconductive than other parts of the body. And then I went on a bit of a quest to find out why. And the reason, it turns out, is embryological, mm -hmm. which is so fun. And I don't know whether you've ever thought about this, but how does an embryo communicate with itself? You know, when, when you think about us, our bodies communicate via our nervous system or via chemicals in the blood. But an embryo doesn't have a fully formed nervous system and it doesn't really have a fully formed cardiovascular system. So how does it signal to itself to bud off an arm or a nose or a freckle, really. And the answer is it does it electrically. And there's, I'm going to give you homework. <laughs> there's a lovely video on YouTube called Electric Frog Face, which is an embryo developing. It's from Tufts University. And it's like lightning going across its face, which is kind of extraordinary. So what happens is the embryo sets up little nodes, which is its staging point for the next 
bit of uh, building. And the first person to recognize this was Alan Turing, the code breaker. Amazingly enough, it's called morphogenesis. Because it's a bit like systems theory in computing, the, the embryo sets up a node, and then that node changes polarity. It's a very specialized tissue, and the next bit of the embryo buds off. And if you put a map of the major acupuncture points over these nodes, you'll find they're in the same place. So I think the very electromagnetic tissue that was used to construct us is less powerful once we're here, but can be used to regulate us. Got it. That was what I found when I wrote this book that I didn't know, even though I'd been an acupuncturist for 20 years. And your working theory as an acupuncturist was that you were touching these points on the energy meridian and sort of rebalancing the chi in the body and running electricity where it might have stagnated or gotten blocked. Like that's sort of one of the basic theories of acupuncture, right? I was classically trained and I still see the world that way. I just see the world both ways. (laughs) But I was trained that there were meridians and that chi flowed through the meridians and that pain and dysfunction occurs when the chi gets blocked. Now, interesting enough in this book, I started to ask, well, what are the meridians then? Mm. Uh, And are there meridians? And it turns out that fascia, which has been long neglected by Western medicine uh, and is just coming into its own, I think, and people are researching it. Fascia is highly electroconductive. It it has a high collagen content, and that means it has a high water content. That's why we use collagen on our faces to make us all glowy. And it, it goes everywhere in the body and it wraps organs. And again, if you superimpose a map of the meridians over the major fascial planes, they're all in the same place. Yeah. So the Chinese thousands of years ago worked out empirically not you know through science necessarily this is a pre-scientific medicine but they worked out empirically how electro uh, electricity was conducted in the body and how to maximize that yeah it's so interesting and intuitively makes so much sense and I love that you start the book talking about Semmelweis because I feel like he is for for many sort of such a important example of why we shouldn't reject what we can't see or don't necessarily understand or have a rubric Um, and energy being one of those things that we don't, I think we're sort of at the beginning, right, of really understanding the mechanism of of how it animates us, how it can be measured, how it affects our health, etc. So for people who don't know about him, can you sort of give a, a tiny history lesson on Yes. what he discovered, and then what ultimately happened to him? Well, in, the Vien- in Vienna, in the sort of 1800s, there were two major maternity hospitals. One was staffed by medical students who were learning and doctors, and one just had midwives. And the one that had the doctors had a very high maternal death rate. So, And it was so notorious that they, they took patients on a opposite days. So they had one day on, one day off. And if women thought they were going to give birth at the hospital known for this high mortality rate, they would beg to be seen in a different hospital. And some of them would rather give birth outside. And it it turned out, Dr. Semmelweis tried to solve this problem. And he realized that, that one thing that differed between the hospitals was that he and the medical students dealt with dead bodies and dissection and things like that. And they had cadaverous particles on their hands. So he instituted hand washing, something we all do routinely. I've worked in hospitals. You just, I feel 
dirty after touching a patient until I uh, wash my hands before going on to the next patient. It's sort of instinctive now. But he introduced hand washing and their mortality rate started to decrease. But sadly, because nobody could see the explanation, eventually he got mocked and eventually everybody stopped doing his protocol, which was really just been clean and because nobody germ theory hadn't been discovered yet so nobody knew what was happening and he he actually sadly died of sepsis he 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 was committed to an insane asylum and he died of sepsis the very thing he was trying to prevent but but it was because nobody could see Mm -hmm. uh, the the problem although they could see the effect of the problem. And that is what I wanted to... I, I opened the book with that story because we can see the effects of energy medicine and we're not quite there when it comes to understanding mm-hmm. how energy gets tr- transmitted from one person to another, but we can see that it does. And there's lots of examples in the book that show that. Right, and and you seem to also aggregate maybe not proof, but many anecdotes about what energy contributes both to disease and and health, right? So what is, can you sort of define, I know there's many versions and practices within that umbrella term, but like, what's the idea? What's the sort of the thesis of energy medicine? Well, it's a broad field. You're absolutely right. Um, and, and full it, of people who might not know what they're doing. The, which... um, there's a yes, it's it's open to some exploitation, and certainly, as you know, I have a whole section on charlatans in mm-hmm. this book because of that. And I did meet some along the way, and I got wiser as time went on. But really, energy medicine refers to all those modalities that diagnose and heal illness by using the electrical energy that pulses through every cell and harnessing it in some way. Acupuncture is probably the best known form of energy medicine. Acupuncture is licensed. They're therefore accountable and can lose their license. So it's a it's a sort of easier milieu to swim in. But all the hands-on theories are also forms of energy medicine. And some of them are extremely effective. So, for instance, there is research from Japan in 1992 where they measured the frequency coming out of the hands of Qigong masters mm. who are very highly trained. And it was a thousand times stronger than the energy field coming out of the heart, which is normal the strongest field in the body a thousand times and it's a very low frequency energy and one of the things I discovered when I was writing this book is that western medicine has discovered that this works too there was a doctor at Columbia University Dr. Andrew Bassett who pioneered the idea of pulsing low frequency electricity through broken bones to speed up healing Mm. and that's now done routinely in orthopedic hospitals all over the country all over the world. And it is exactly the same frequency as comes out of the hands of Qigong masters. So we know that that low frequency heals soft tissue and bone. And we know that people can produce it without plugging into the mains. And we've seen that from research. So it's sort of tantalizing, I felt like. And I think too, I mean, I love that every chapter sort of ends with things that the reader can do to develop their own ability to sort of clear out chakras or create heat in your hands or sort of do this for yourself, that that energy, clearly you have a gift, but that you're not necessarily, it's not necessarily some sort of spiritual blessing where only the chosen, it's not a necessarily a rarefied field of 
woo-woo spiritual practitioners who are channeling source, right? It's something that that doctors have been able to learn how to do, that civilians have been able to learn how to do. And then there are, I guess, the masters who you go and see. And speaking of Qigong, so Master Yang. Yes. Yes. Is she still in California? She is. I, I, I disguised her name because I didn't want her to have a queue at the door. But you're absolutely right. I do not see myself as special at all. Uh, and in fact, when I looked at charlatans, I was expecting to see people who were just complete con artists. Mm-hmm. But I met a whole group of people who did have some talent, but it had got it had affected their egos in such a way that they were using it to be exploitative right. in some way, either sexually exploitative or for money or for social connection or for advancement or something like or fame yeah. uh, or something like that. And I began to think that it was very important that healers didn't feel special, right. actually. But we're not. I, I do this all day, so I've had some practice. But everybody can do this. I'm convinced of it. I have 25 acupuncturists working for me at the Innova Center, and they're all energy workers, and they're all great at it. So this is our birthright, mm-hmm. I think. And it it If you look at the research, or at least interestingly, I submitted my body to science, so I actually do know what happens to me. (laughs) And I think this is the same for everybody else. I had an EKG of my heart and an EEG of my brain while I was working. And what happens to me is that my heart and my brain go into what's called resonance. They start to go at the same frequency. And then the patient's heart, thanks to something called mirror neurons, goes into resonance with mine. So we're all going at the same frequency. And that is when the magic happens. when information gets passed from one person to another, which I think is kind of beautiful, actually. Do you think that the healing mechanism is simply that? It's like a resonant clearing, a passing of clear energy through the body of someone else or a mouse in in some of the studies that you discuss. Is that what it is? It's sort of just creating a channel and then there's an interior recalibration that the body just sort of wants to go back to its balanced, clean self? Or do you, what, what do you think is happening? I think it is that, actually. I think that qi in Asian medicine can be translated as energy, but it is really the body's intelligence. Mm-hmm. It's all the ways the body restores homeostasis, all the things we take for granted in some ways, like we have an extra drink at dinner and our liver just gets on with it, the ways our different organ systems interact with each other. These are all your body's intelligence, and we're very mm-hmm. finely calibrated, but we are beings that try to get back into balance. And a lot of these modalities help with that. And you mentioned the mouse studies. Yes. I find them absolutely Can, fascinating. Will you take us through that and, and Bengston's work? And I mean, Hero, it's interesting because he was involved. It's now NYU Langoni, right? That he was, it was originally. He, he did this at City University, okay. and there were some studies at NYU Langone, and I, I ran the acupuncture program okay. at, at, at NYU, okay. and that is how I met Bill. Okay. through the head of research at NYU. I was trying to look at how to conduct research into energy healers, which is not the easiest thing in the world, cutting down all the variables and the placebo effect and things like that. And so I met a, a man called Dr. William Bengston, Bill to me. And Bill, Bill's story is fascinating. He learned uh, an energy medicine technique from a psychic healer who was quite an erratic, uh, eccentric figure. And Bill decided to, 
take this into the lab. And he was going to test the energy healer himself, but there was some kind of drama and the energy healer didn't show up. And Bill had some mice that he was ready to test this this thing on. And these are mice that are specially bred to have cancer, which is sad, poor mice. And they always die when they're injected with cancer. They always die on day 27. And that's how pharmaceuticals are tested. If they mm-hmm. you know, live longer than day 29, then that's considered a good result. So Bill had these special mice and no energy healer. So he decided to do the technique himself. And that was the first study he did. He had six mice and he did the technique. And I give the technique in the book. It's not complicated. It takes a while to learn, but it's not in in any way complex. And the mice got much worse to start with and then recovered. And what's more, when they tried to re-inject them with cancer, they couldn't get it. Something about their immune systems had permanently changed. So Bill did what good scientists do because science should be replicable. You can't Mm -hmm. just have a special someone somewhere that nobody can see. You know, we all build on each other's work in science. So Bill wondered if he could teach anyone to do this, the very thing you and I were just talking about. So he took a bunch of colleagues and skeptical students and he taught them the technique and they all had a few mice each. And again, the mice survived and in fact cured themselves of the cancer and couldn't get it back. And what Bill realized, they've done this study over and over and over again at this point on thousands of mice. And what he, what dawned on him was that this is a information carried by a frequency. And at some point he wondered, I wonder if I can put the same frequency into cell medium. Mm-hmm. And so at Brown University, they put the frequency into cell medium and then they put human cancer tissue in the cell medium. And when I wrote the book, it had made nine genetic changes in the human cancerous tissue. And by the time I had my book launch, which Bill came to, it had made 37 known genetic changes in human cancerous tissue. So this is information, and I think you're absolutely right. I can't completely prove it, but I think the patient does the healing. Mm -hmm. They recalibrate in response to information. In fact, I always tell my patients, my job's not that hard, really. I just act as a conduit. Yeah. (laughs) And then you (laughs) take the information and start to rebalance. Like, you're the important bit. Right. I'm I'm just here. Well, I've spoken to many doctors, too, who theorize that many of us are developing cancer all the time and that we sort of nip it. Like, we're, we sort of come back into balance, like our our immune system gets it. There's never sort of a, a true emergence of the disease, but that if you were to look at us at any point in time, there are probably things happening that our body is curtailing. Yeah, it's interesting. There was some research in the United Kingdom that looked at young men who'd unfortunately been killed in car accidents. And a large percentage of them had cancerous cells in their prostates, although we know that most of them would not go on to get prostate cancer. And in Chinese medicine, we're always taught that cancer is a sort of trifecta. It comes from stagnation which leads to denser and denser tissue that doesn't have movement of blood and and lymph through, toxicity of some sort, including emotional toxicity, which the Chinese don't make much of a difference between. So repressed negative emotions or, in fact, the kind of toxicity that comes from the kind of household cleaners we Mm -hmm. use that are very sort of estrogenic and affect our hormones. Same idea. And then what we would call qi deficiency, which really means, translates to your body's intelligence 
not working properly. You know, so your immune system not mounting a defense. And so when we look at cancer and we look at supporting cancer patients, we look at all those things. We keep we keep chi moving. We deal with inflammation and toxicity and negative emotions, and we make lifestyle adjustments with them to make their lives cleaner, their cosmetics cleaner, that kind of thing. Uh, and then we give their immune system a boost. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. We'll get back to Jill Blakeway in just a second. If you feel like you're overdue for a family vacation or a dinner out with your best friends, I feel you. If you're looking for any incentive to pull the trigger, there's always Chase Sapphire Reserve. With this card, you can earn three times the points on travel and dining worldwide. And when you're on the road or on vacation or eating out, this all adds up, as you know. So might as well get rewarded for it, right? The other big perk of the Sapphire card is that you receive up to $300 in statement credits annually as reimbursements for travel purchases charged to your card. So maybe you'll try out that new dinner spot with your friends or finally take a day off and get out of Dodge, or maybe it's just a scenic train ride to work for you. It all adds up into more rewards with Chase Sapphire Reserve. To learn more, head to chase.com sapphire. It's that time of the year again. We're celebrating one of our favorite holidays on Saturday, November 16th. It's called Ingoop Health. And for the first time, we'll be up north around San Francisco. If you're not familiar with Ingoop Health, it's our Super Bowl version of a wellness summit. Gwyneth and I will be hosting a series of talks and panels with incredible thought leaders. And there are many more extraordinary practitioners, teachers, and culture changers leading classes and workshops. We'll be covering a lot of ground, physically and metaphorically, We'll learn about intimacy, the power of connection, fasting, tools for reducing stress, and how to quiet our inner critics. We'll be joined by some of the people I admire most, like psychotherapist and psychological astrologer Jennifer Freed and psychiatrist Will Sue, who are teaching a joint workshop on manifesting your authentic self. Wall Street legend Sally Krawcheck will be leading a masterclass on money. Judy White is teaching a workshop on what dreams really mean. Walter Longo is giving us his longevity secrets. And you'll get to bounce on a mini trampoline with Lauren Roxborough, which is, coincidentally, my favorite pastime. And because it's Goop, you can also expect B12 shots galore, amazing food and drinks, and some surprises along the way. If you've been to an Ingoop Health before, I hope you'll be back. And if this is your first time, I can't wait to meet you. The summit is on Saturday, November 16th, 
And you can get tickets now at goop.com slash in goop health. Back to my chat with Joe Blakeway. One of the other things, just to close out on the mouse studies that I thought was so remarkable, is the idea, I guess, originally in the original study, there was the control group, and they also spontaneously healed, even though they weren't directly getting the medicine. And then they did it again where they took, they split the control group in half, right? So half were on site and half were taken off site. And the t- those taken off site did not survive, but the ones on site continued to survive. And this idea that researchers were sort of traveling in between the rooms and maybe, and that there was a resonance in the healing too, right? That Yes. It, you didn't necessarily need to be getting the direct that it was it was carried through by relationship. Well, do you remember me saying that the mice got better before they got worse? Well, every worse before uh, they got sorry. <laughs> Do you remember me saying the mice got worse before they got better? Well, everybody who was conducting the study freaked out. Bill did in the original study because they thought the mice were suffering, yeah? Mm-hmm. And so and the students did the same thing. And so they would sneak and look at the control group to see how bad they looked, if you right. see what I mean. And every time they did that, they looped the control group into what's called a meaning field, which is so interesting. And the control group started to get better. And so they got wise to this. And you're absolutely right they sent the control mice out to different labs and then they died and didn't respond to the healing but what I learned from this is that we are looping people into these loose bonds with us the whole time right we have to be a little careful what we think totally for better or for worse yes we are looping people in and we are affecting each other at the University of Connecticut they put people in separate MRIs in separate rooms and when one thought healing thoughts about the other their brainwaves started to sync up and they could see that on the the MRI MRIs. As you know, in the book, there are plenty of examples of interviewers interviewing someone, a bit like you're doing with me, and starting to show the interviewee's heart waves in their brain waves. You know, as we connect and we get interested and we're talking and making eye contact, my heart waves in all probability are starting to show up in your brain waves. Are you healing my body as we speak? (laughs) Well, who's healing who is what we, (laughs) but we, but we heal each other in communion with each other. And that's why community is so important and that's why when we get very isolated by the internet and we start to do everything online and get everything delivered and even do our exercise class on our own in our living room we're missing something really important which is that we calibrate ourselves in relation to each other to each other and to the earth right yes absolutely one of the best examples of this is the pear lab at princeton this is a study that's been going on since the 1970s in the engineering department at princeton which i always imagine is literally the least woo department at princeton don't you think the engineering department where they make concrete stuff real stuff. But in the engineering department, they had a female grad student who wondered if she could design a machine that was changed by the human mind. Mm. And Dr. Jean, the dean of engineering, who I met and has since died, he was in his 90s, but I met when I was writing this book, didn't believe for a second that she could pull this off. But he thought it would be a good project for a grad student to do this. And, you know, it's an interesting way to have to think through constructing a machine. But she did. 
She mm-hmm. did pull it off. She created a machine that, thanks to decaying atomic material, spits out random numbers. And those ra- random numbers become less random when we focus on them, and particularly when we focus on them with feeling, and particularly when more than one person focuses on them in a way that would be statistically impossible. And they have created little random, they're called random event generators, REGs. They've created mm. little portable ones, and they've taken them everywhere. The study is no longer being conducted by Princeton. It's now being conducted by something called the Global Consciousness Project, which you can look up online. But they've taken them to the Trump inaugural and to yoga retreats. And what they've found is that we have an impact on the machine when we gather together and we feel the same thing. And that love and compassion has the greatest impact. But unfortunately, fear unites us too. Mm. and also affects the machine. And fear is a contractive energy, as you know. We're watching our country become fearful and contract on the world stage. I'm English. I'm watching Britain become fearful and contract in the same way. And fear spreads like a virus. And so it started to make me think that we have to choose love in a really radical way because we are affecting each other uh, more than we understand. And more than that, if we can affect the machine, then we're affecting reality. So we're affecting what happens next. And so we can be fearful and contract and we will create this contractive, painful future for ourselves. Or we can be loving and compassionate and expansive and we will create a a bigger and brighter future for ourselves. But it all starts with what, how we feel. Oh, it's so fascinating. And not to put you on the spot, but I know obviously people come to you and come to Unova for fertility and for cancer or just for general well-being and, and, and balance and this idea of staying well. What is the appropriate course? I mean, many of my friends have gotten pregnant through acupuncture. Clearly, it's, it's essentially been proven to be a very useful tool. For, you know, the mice study with cancer is the idea that you do this in conjunction with other medical treatments. I thought it was, I think it was Bill who says he doesn't know if it works on cells that have been killed or damaged, right? So like, what's the path there? Because that's, that's obviously very fraught, right? You don't want people to not pursue treatment in the hopes of a different type sort of healing I'm very careful about that personally. Yeah. I'm very careful not to overpromise and underdeliver. I think um, you know the truth is very solid for people. And you're right, Bill. He would he would say that this is very experimental. I would agree with him. Yeah. And he finds that he can't do it on cells that have already had chemo or radiation. It may be that they then can't be reminded of who they are mm. in the same way. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do chemo or radiation. Right. And I'm a big believer in medical partnerships. The reason that UNOVA is so successful here in New York, we have three offices and, you know, a lot of uh, acupuncturists is because we do partner with people's doctors. And I I think most people want to get the best of both worlds. I do. Yeah. I go and see my doctor. No, for sure. <laughs> and I am, you know, I've always straddled this science and mystery. You know, the book is called Energy Medicine, The Science and Mystery of Healing for a reason. I wrote my first book, Making Babies with a Doctor, because I wanted people to have the best of both worlds. And so that's what I try and get my Unova patients 
patients. We yeah. collaborate with their doctors and we try and get them the best of both worlds. And when it comes to cancer, we never claim to treat cancer. We treat cancer patients. Mm-hmm. So their oncologists are treating them for cancer and we're treating the whole body to give them the best fighting chance. And between us, that's a powerful combination, I think. Yeah. Um, but we're not the whole picture and we don't pretend to be. Right. No, I, I agree with that. And I think there there's this... I think it's sort of a myth at this at this point that we work with a ton of conventional doctors at Goop, and we also explore obviously things that are all more alternative and and champion them as much as possible in a responsible way. But it is the marriage. It's like let's use all the tools available, and I, I think that people believe that there's a rejection of one side by the other, and the best medicine seems to be somewhere in the middle. I think that's dying out, that kind of dogma on both sides. I've been an acupuncturist for over 20 years. And when I was first practicing Chinese medicine, there was much more anti-Western medicine dogma. I was unusual. I always wanted to work with doctors. I got my start in a hospital. And so I was always um, wanting to integrate it and always interested in conventional medicine, which I think is extremely precise in its diagnostics and I think very impressive but I was unusual and so we were all filled with dogma back in the day and doctors we know were anti-alternative medicine and confirmation bias is a weird thing we see it in politics at the moment don't Mm -hmm. we people de-emphasize the news they don't want to hear and emphasize the news they do that supports their view on both sides of the political aisle and that's the same in medicine and so something like Bill's studies for instance the science is impeccable, Mm -hmm. absolutely impeccable. And Bill is really open to having people critique the science and help him make it better. He just wants to know what this is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so if we all drop our dogma and our confirmation bias and just take a look, I think the evidence is from the Princeton studies, from Bill's my studies, from the studies that show that people pick up each other's heart waves and brain waves, that we are affecting each other and that that can be used to prompt healing. It can be used yeah. to prompt people to heal. And it's interesting too, I think it's the technique, the Bill's technique, which is the cycling and, and cycling through images that are unrelated as a way to distract your mind, which again just sort of goes to this idea that you talk about throughout the book, which is that you're tapping into some sort of source energy or larger energy field or the Tao or whatever it is that we want to call it, but that it's not an ego thing, right? Like it's a displacement of ego. It's it's funny, if I were to personally, if someone were like, you need to try to heal this person with energy, I would try and make it a mental thing, right? I'd be like, oh, think, I'm going to like think about the energy and forcing it into their body. But like, it's not, it's a conduit or channeling experience where you step aside or create that resonance. And I think that's, you know, this idea that we're all one, we're all connected is so important on every level is so important right now, as you mentioned, like going with the love, not with the fear, understanding our impact in making other people ill or well. It's, It's an incredible amount of responsibility, but it's such a beautiful idea. And I think we all inherently know that it's true. We are, I left this book, having written it, completely changed. Mm-hmm. And partly, as you know, I went to Japan and I spent time with amazing healers. And as you know, in the last chapter of the book, I had my chakras open mm-hmm. and I never saw the world quite the same again, which is a big shock to me. But what I saw was the light that connects us and that it is 
the same light. And this is the bit where we're no longer being scientific. This is the mystery in some ways. And it is the little bit of mystery that's always just outside of our reach. Mm -hmm. But I believe with all my heart that there is a source energy. You can call it God. You can call it Chi. You can call it the Tao. But there is a, a source energy that runs through all of us, that animates us, and that is our awareness, and that has an intelligence to it. And we co-create with that source and with our fellow human beings. Um, and what we choose to create, we can create. We're naturally creative. And we're not doing it the way we think. We're not doing it by focusing really hard. Yeah. We're doing it by feeling. And you're absolutely right. Bill's technique is to distract the mind of the healer with ego-gratifying images. So, so he has people flash in front of their mind things they want, not their noble wants like world peace and things like that, but just, you know, a new bag and nice shoes or something. <laughs> and you just flash it in front of your mind. I was self-taught and I taught myself to do something similar but different. I empty my mind. Mm -hmm. I always tell people I'm really sharp when I'm diagnosing, but once I'm treating, I'm a little not quite here. <laughs> right. You know, ask me the important questions when we're sitting before the treatment, because during the treatment, I, I empty my mind and I slow it down. We know that because I did the EEG, so we know my mind gets really slow and I distract myself. And in the early days, I would sometimes, my ego would suddenly come in and I would think, oh, gosh, I really want to help this patient or something like that. And the minute I did that, the energy would get less strong. So much so that the patient would be like, oh, what happened? Right. I'd think, oh, I know what happened. <laughs> I started to try and control things is yeah. what happened. And again, in the early days, I, I treat a lot of celebrities and I'm used to it now. It's sort of my life. But in the early days, it was still very exciting. And so someone would come and I'd think, oh, my goodness, I, I should be very impressive. And the minute I did that, I was useless right. uh, because I have to switch me off in order for this to, to to come through me. And Bill had developed a way of teaching students to switch themselves off a bit by distracting their egos. It's so cool. And it's the implications of it are so amazing and simple, you know. Very simple. I put exercises at the end of the book. They're all quite simple, but they are the beginnings of you developing healing energy. And then if you practice, you'll be able to transmit that frequency carrying information to your friends and family. And Bill's technique, which he very generously let me write about, is really very straightforward. It takes a while to learn how to flash those images really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. But once you've created that little generator in your head, you can switch it on and off. Yeah. And I feel like the science, too, is is coming along. I mean, you, you I know you write about the HeartMath Institute. I think they're what they do in, in terms of measuring sort of the... I guess the depth of field that the heart creates energetically is so interesting. And then the corona, the Curlian like photos of of what of the light that we emit. I guess that's like an early aura photo, right? Yes, yes, and absolutely fascinating. In the book I describe, I was invited to a conference at Yale, which was a group of mostly Ivy League scientists who are willing to investigate unusual phenomena. And you can imagine they were fascinating. <laughs> I went with my researcher, Michael. We were just, our jaws hit the floor. There were the near-death experience researchers and the phantom limb pain researchers and all sorts of people. So science is 
paying attention to this. It's just a hard area to gain acceptance. Right. And many of the scientists at that conference told us that one of the, their advice to younger scientists is get tenure before you start doing this kind of thing. <laughs> it just seems like we just we lack at this point, we lack all the tools for measuring something that's that's happening on the cellular or invisible level. Well, like Semmelweis, we're measuring it by its effect. Right. You know, Bill's studies can't measure yet the actual frequency. They just know that the mice get better and they're mice. So it's not a placebo effect. The mice don't know that they're sick and then they don't know they're supposed to get better. And yet they do. And we know that they can't get the cancer afterwards. So they become immune. But we don't actually completely know the mechanism. So we are at the Semmelweis stage where we understand that there is a stimulus and a reaction, but we're not quite sure what the stimulus is. What do you think will ultimately come out of that work? I, Bill's work fascinates me. I hope he keeps going and going. <laughs> he is now, as you know from the book, he can put it into cotton, this frequency, but he, it, it looks very much as if they can just use it as sound. Yeah. And so at some point, it may be as simple as an app that you play or something like that. This could be very cheap and easy. <laughs> and imagine? so they're looking at ways of making this frequency just available easily. Um, and so that that's where they're going with that. And I, I looked at sound in the book, as you know, yeah. towards the end of the book, when I looked at a young man who healed himself with vibration, uh, a man called Madhu Anziani, who fell out of his dorm room window when he was at university in uh, San Francisco, and broke his neck and was tetraplegic. And he was taken to UCSF and he was operated on, he was in a coma. And when he came round, um, he was told that he would be tetraplegic for the rest of his life. His spine was 99% severed, which meant that he had 1% of connection. And he made a noise and he realized that he could feel it throughout his body. And he was only 23, but he had the presence of mind to realize that if he could feel the vibration of the noise he was making through his body he must have some nervous system right. and so he started to tone and people came in to the hospital and taught him mantras someone bought a prayer wheel and his father would lift him up and move his hands so that he could move the prayer wheel and at one point a nurse said to him Madhu you need to work out how to be the te best tetraplegic you can be rather than keep hoping that you're going to walk again I think quite well meaningly and he said to her no I'm going to walk out of here and he said to me Jill it wasn't that I was stupid I knew that there was a possibility a, a strong possibility that I'd be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life but I never let that person permeate my being, right. he said. And I tried to feel joy, which I think at 23 shows extraordinary maturity. So Madhu kept toning. And within three months, he did actually walk out of the hospital. And he told me a year later, he was able to fly home to New York on his own on a plane. I like that story because it illustrates something that you and I have just spoken about. Madhu didn't heal himself in a vacuum. He had the best surgeons. UCSF has a phenomenal neurology unit. He had physical therapy. He had great nursing. He had the support of his family. His Reiki teacher came to see him every day. But he also, I believe, healed himself mm -hmm. against all the odds by creating vibration through his spinal cord and that that healed his nervous system. And so sound 
is yeah. where I think this is going. I think, I think this frequency will be able to be emitted as a sound, and at some point we'll be able to use that in a way that heals people in ways that right now we would think were miraculous. Wouldn't that be astonishing? It'd be amazing. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jill Blakeway. Make sure to get a copy of her book, Energy Medicine. You can learn more about her at goop.com slash the podcast, and you can visit the Unova Center site at unovacenter.com. That's Y-I-N-O-V-A. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.